not quite perfect, but it all sorted itself out probably by the time we end, and <laughs> we will figure it out. So the question is, you know, when we're working with the kinds of mind that is, you know, moving between, you know, why on earth did I sign up to come to this? You know? So we have a, our own mantra of, you know, what am I doing here? That repeats again and again and again. Or if only it would be different, it goes on and on and on. Or if my body would relax, you know, whatever it is. And so sometimes it's helpful just to step back a moment and look at from a larger perspective of, you know, why? Why? Really, why? Why do we do this? Why do we sit in a situation that isn't familiar, that's with people that we don't know that well, in a context that we, none of us have ever been on retreat here before? Why do we do it? It's actually a useful question to ask. Because when we have a frame of why we do it, then it gives us from perspective of, well, when we, it's not so comfortable or so easy, it gives us the context of why we stay with it when it's not comfortable, when it's not easy. Yeah. So I'm going to um, refer to some reading that I've done in the last few years and, and, and then bring it back into Buddhist teachings. When I was one of the writers, a contemporary writer, who I've appreciated a lot is Ken Wilber. Um, and the reason why I've appreciated his writing is because he's delineated stages of consciousness and stages of development in many, many different spheres, including you know, what it is to wake up and be free. And one of the things that he's delineated is, is that you know there are different stages of development and at each different stage of development, we're going to experience the world according to the stage of development that we're at. And so if we are at a stage of development where we're tribal, you know, everything that we see or think about or feel or look at or believe is going to be from the perspective of a tribal context. And then there's a, another kind of context that's more... Um, interested in equality or interested in, 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 uh, in people having equal access. And if that's the stage of development that we're predominantly at, that that's the lens that we look at things through. And our views and our values and our ideas and our thoughts are going to be very much characterized by this sense of wanting things to be equal or wanting everyone to have equal access. And then if there's a, a sense of a, like a pluralistic where there's a recognition that, you know, everybody is where they're at. Nobody is imperfect. They're perfect for exactly where they're at. An 11-year-old is not an imperfect 15-year-old. A 7-year-old is not an imperfect 11-year-old. A 7-year-old is perfect exactly for being 7. An 11-year-old is perfect exactly for being 11. And so there isn't a sense of somebody is right or wrong, but in a capacity to be able to move more to seeing people for where they're at. And that this is the way it is, and this is the way you view things, and it's based on all of these different conditions. And one of the single biggest... So I have felt frustrated, you know, over the years. I don't know if you have. You know, why do people cling to these ideas? You know, they get stuck in an idea. Why do they cling to them? Because that's the idea of their stage of development. That's the idea that fits perfectly their stage of development. 
So it doesn't matter how much logic you bring. It doesn't matter how passionate you are. It doesn't matter how convincing you are, how much evidence you have. If a person has a particular lens through which they're viewing the world, that's the way they view the world. And there's not a lot that, as an individual person, you can change to change their view. Because the view is not based always on logic, it's based on development. And what changes our capacity to view the world from different stages of development is consciousness. And the greatest thing, the single biggest thing that helps us move from one stage of development to another stage of development, the single biggest thing is meditation. So wherever we are, it's perfect. It's exactly where we're at. And for most of us, there are stages of development that we can go through that open our heart and mind to seeing things from a wider perspective where there's less suffering that is caused as a result of our views and our values and our thoughts and our ideas. And we can't get there with logic. We can't get there with the way our friends think. We get there with our own consciousness ripening and developing. And the best way of doing that is through meditation. So, when we're looking at our own life and we're looking at our way of living in the world and we're looking at the impact that we have on the world, the greater level of development they have, the greater capacity that we have for impacting in a way which is beneficial and not impacting in a way which is harmful. And yet we cannot will development. We cannot will ourselves into different stages of understanding. We can create the conditions that allow our mind to open so that we can begin to see things through different lenses. And as we do, then our views and our values and our ideas and our thoughts will change in accordance with the stage of development that we're at. This is Ken Wilber's thinking. Anyway, I like it because it actually seems to resonate with my own understanding and it also is very common with the Buddhist map of meditation and mindfulness in terms of why meditation is considered such an important part of what we do. Now let's tile it back a little bit and speak about it from the perspective of the Buddha and his life experience and what happened to him and see if there's any correlation that we can make between us and him and, again, why we're doing this. Okay? So the Buddha was born into a family uh, with a king, Suodhana, as his dad, and Queen Mahamaya as his mom. And Queen Mahamaya died shortly after he was born. And so his, his, his step-mom, his paternal aunt, Mahapajapati, became his, his uh, foster mom. And so he was raised in an environment with an enormous amount of privilege. He had good fortune, he had excellent education, he had the best opportunities, and he was talented and exceeded and excelled in virtually everything that he tried. So he was gifted at sports and gifted at learning and handsome and people loved him. 
So most of the things that all of us would kind of like to have, like on our checklist, if only, you know, if only I had a support system, if only I had a good education, if only I had a family that was different, if only I, all of the things that are often on our list, he had checked off. You know, they were, he had, he had that. He had those things. And as the son of a king, he had a fabulous draw prospects, you know. And his dad didn't just want him to be a king, his dad wanted him to be a world-ruling monarch, which was not just king of a region, but king of an entire sphere. And so, you know, what happened? Well, we know in the story what happened was is that the, the Buddha got disillusioned with the pleasures of the world through having contact with just simple things like seeing old age, sickness, and death. And, you know, when each of us has really seen old age, sickness, and death and let it in, let it touch us, that we are not able to have dominion and power over that. And that everybody that we love is also subject to the same things, old age, sickness, and death. We cannot control it. We cannot avoid it. And no matter how much power we have or resources we have or intelligence we have or brilliance we have, these are things that we're going to have to experience. And everyone we love and cherish is also going to experience these things. And most of the time, it's like, you know, we don't, we don't want to think about it, you know? I'm not interested in that. You know, I'm interested in, in living my life. I'm interested in having a good time. I'm interested in thinking about, you know, having fun or having, doing nice things with my friends. Our attention is not focused on these basic realities of life. And our society often really encourages not to focus us on them, you know? And, and has made a lot of traction on hiding things like death. So in our society, you know, when somebody dies, most of the time, it's like, you know, it happens behind curtains and closed doors, and you don't know about it, you don't see it. So the other day, not long ago, I was in, I was in California, and I was visiting my mom, and the day I showed up to visit my mom, um, somebody came and told her that somebody in the community was very sick and it looked like she was dying. And you know, she just had tea with her two nights before and she was looked fine. And so it was like, you know, how could this possibly be? So we had our meal and then we went up to go see her and she looked, she did look very, very unwell. But I'm not skilled enough to know how close a person is to death because I haven't had enough contact with that. But it doesn't matter. You know, I don't need to know trajectories in order to just show up and to be present. So I just sat by her side, and she had been a meditator. And so, um, and I knew her. I didn't know her well, but I knew her. She had been a meditator. So I just sat by her side. And in an hour and a half, she was dead. And it was like, wow, you know? It was just, wow. It's just amazing. And it was just right there right in front of, you know, right there, right there. And for me, it was an incredible privilege to be able to have that last hour and a half of her life with her and to just drop into stillness and to be absolutely present 
to have zero agenda and just to be able to uh, be and respond in, in whatever ways felt like it was needed. You know, just, just drop in. And it's like, you know, this is what life is. Life has this as its consequence. You know, she died because she was born. That's why. And we don't know when it's going to happen. But in that circumstance, there was a blessing of it in the sense that she lived a long life. She was in her 80s. And, you know, the last few years had been a challenge. And she wasn't very sick for a very long time. And there was no sense of struggle. It was just a sense of just, you know, presence and a tiny bit of discomfort. And then she was gone. So touching death and letting death in. And one of the community members, you know, I asked her how she's doing. She says, I've had enough of death. It's like, I don't want to know about it. And I don't want to go there. You know? It's like it's too close. You know, have somebody just like that in your community die like that. You know? It is not comfortable. It's not what we normally talk about. And yet, sometimes that's what happens. Yeah. So the Buddha encountered old age sickness and death. And when each of us encounter that in a real way, sometimes it has a real shift in our priorities and our values and the way we want to spend our time. So he decided he was going to leave what was comfortable and what was familiar. And so he left everything. Everything. He left his status, he left his family, he left his possessions. He left everything. Set out on this quest because the last thing that he had seen was somebody wearing robes and shaven head and he was on a quest for enlightenment. And this word, enlightenment, you know, the possibility of being beyond old age, sickness, and death. What is that? What is that? So, that compelling urge was the motivation that left him saying that what he had was not meeting those needs. And he went out looking for something that would... What is beyond old age, sickness, and death? What is beyond old age, sickness, and death? Everything in this world that we know that is created, you know, eventually it falls apart. The things, the structures... Communities, families, bodies, everything. Everything. It is born, it exists for a while, and then it starts to dismantle and dissolve. So what is beyond that? So the Buddha set out on a quest, and at the time he went and sought out the masters of the day, and they were masters of concentration. And concentration, when the mind really comes into unification, absorption, we can experience the most exalted things that can be known. 
in the conditioned sphere. And I chose those words very carefully because concentration is conditioned. So as exalted and as peaceful and as joyful and as blissful or as equanimous or as expanded as his mind could become in concentration, when the conditions no longer supported concentration, then it was back to the same old, same old. It's wonderful, it's terrible, I miss my family, I long for my family, I like it peaceful, I hate it peaceful, I want some fun, I don't want some fun, I want to be here, I don't want to be here. The kinds of ways that the mind moves would still be the things that were operating, the habitual patterns would not have ended with just having been able to let the mind absorb into a concentrated state that is able to experience the bliss of this conditioned world. It doesn't change the fabric that things still arise, exist for a while, and then fade away. So, he said, okay, you know, this isn't it. What is it? And he didn't know, but he thought he would try. And so in that age, you know, there was a belief that the source of the problem was in the body. And so if you suppressed the body, dominated the body, you would suppress and dominate the problem. Well, we know now that's not the right view. It's not in the body. That's what they believed then. And so they did all kinds of extreme practices that would make us not feel at all inspired in order to suppress and control the body. And so the Buddha was hanging out, he wasn't the Buddha that Siddhartha Gautama was hanging out with five ascetics and they were doing these extreme practices of not eating very much and not sleeping very much and just anything that you could possibly imagine that cuts across our normal habits. And he got extremely thin and his body got weak and he noticed that, well, you know, he was no longer, no closer to his goal than before. And furthermore, he was weakened and had less capacity to actually bring forth the right energy. So he decided, you know, this is, this is not moving in the direction that I had hoped. So he said, I need to try another way. Now these five ascetics who had made this commitment were really bonded in the identity of doing ascetic practices as who they did, who they were, and what they were doing. So when he left to take some nourishment, then the others said to, you know, they were they were um, disillusioned, dismayed. And so they made an agreement that, you know, if ever he comes back, just don't pay him any attention because he's a, you know, he's a, he's a washout, he's a wimp, he's given in. He doesn't have any conviction, he doesn't have any strength, he doesn't have what it takes. So, write him off. So the Buddha, again, left the confines and the safety and the familiarity of this group that he was practicing with because he could see that it wasn't yielding the right results. and went to practice on his own. And had a memory of when he was a child, 
when his mind went into concentration and then came out of concentration and relaxed into awareness. And that was to him a sign or a signal of the path. And so there came a time for him in his own life journey where he decided, I've had enough, I've done everything I know to do. This is like, this is, it's, this is it. I, I'm going to stay here and sort this out or I'll die. But I'm not going to move from the seat because I've done everything I know to do and I'm committed, no matter what the consequences are, to stay present and to watch this shift or to die. Now, meditators hear this and they think, okay, so what the Buddha did, I can do. And so they go and they sit underneath a tree and in 24 hours, their minds separate from their bodies and then the meditation teachers scoop them up and take them to a psychiatric center where they can have the holding that they need in order to patch back together because we don't have the paramita that Siddhartha Gautama has. And so to make a determination with will without having the ground to support it doesn't yield the same results that it yielded for him. So we cannot take literally what he said and did as what is something that we can do for ourselves without developing the, the support underneath us to make it possible. So here he was with this phenomenal resolve. I'm not moving from my seat. And then the story comes about the host of Mara. You know? And for a, a man who's 35 years old, the first thing that comes is sensual desire. And for a man, that's often in a heterosexual world in the shape of a woman. And so Mara, disguised in these voluptuous, sensuous, exquisitely gorgeous forms, came to dance and to seduce and to try and shake him off of his seat. And the story goes that the Buddha didn't fight them or kill them or suppress them or squash them punish them or insult them. All he did was say, I know you, Mara. I know desire as desire when it arises in mind. I don't need to be shaken by it, distressed by it, confused by it. It's desire. It feels like this. The desire for things to be comfortable, the desire for things to be clear, the desire to have energy, the desire not to have sleepiness. Desire. The desire to feel well, I'm not feeling well. Desire. We all experience desire, and it comes in 10,000 different shapes and sizes and forms and expressions. And desire is desire, and we can know desire. We don't have to be confused by desire.
So desire came in the shape of these voluptuous women. It didn't shake his resolve. He stayed on his seat. And then the next host of Mara that came was anger. Now, women and men have anger, but the way we do anger is very different. Men tend to duke it out. It's out there, it's hot, it's active, and then it releases. With women, it tends to be much more uh, in terms of the way we relate to our community. It's not so often direct, it's more indirect, and it often is the way in which we poison a person's safety or belonging in a community. But anger is anger. And so when these forms came to tempt Siddhartha Gautama to fight, to retaliate, to attack, he said, I know you, Mara. I know that experience of ill will. I know that experience of anger. I know that experience of indignation. I know that experience. It's like this. That's the way it arises. I know it. It feels like this. And so, again, he didn't have to kill them or punish them or suppress them or insult them or belittle them or shame them. Because what he was seeing in the them was a manifestation of his own mind. And as he was aware of his own mind and not confused by his own mind, then these manifestations vanquished. So, the next host of Mara. Who's the next host of Mara? Doubt. You think, come on, Siddhartha Gautama doesn't have doubt. (laughs) I've got doubt. He doesn't have doubt. Well, that's not true. The last host of Mara that came was doubt. And the way it voiced itself was, who do you think you are to be completely free? Now, it's not often I wake up in the morning and the first thought in my mind is, who do I think I am to be completely enlightened? That's not my doubt. I have other doubts, but that's not my doubt. And I know people who doubt whether they have the right to exist, whether they have the right to be here. That's their doubt. But doubt is doubt. And so what the Buddha did when he experienced this last host of Mara was he just touched his hand to the ground. And he asked Gaia to bear witness to the accumulated acts of goodness that he had done for eons. And in that act of touching the earth and Gaia bearing witness to his goodness, his mind opened. The last host of Mara was vanquished. And there was no more confusion keeping him from seeing things clearly 
and directly, just exactly as they are. And so when we talk about cultivating the path and bringing forth generosity, this is not just some kind of a a goody-goody idea. This was what really was the foundation that made it possible for Siddhartha Gautama to awaken. Because we need to be tethered to our own goodness to be able to endure the kinds of things that we experience. The thoughts are sticky and compelling. And until there is strength of mind to just notice thought as thought, we need a counterbalancing weight to be able to moderate the thoughts that compel with a perspective that holds to be able to develop the mindfulness that can just then see thought as thought, desire as desire, anger as anger, doubt as doubt. Just watching it arise. Am I okay? Am I sufficient? Do I have what it takes? Do I know how to teach? Do I know how to meditate? Is when I'm doing the right path, should I be doing a different path? Should I be living where I'm living? Should I be living in a different place? Do I have the right job? Where should I move? And it's not as if times of questioning these things isn't valid. But when this becomes obsessive thinking, just looping around doubt, it's not easy to get out of doubt with thought. So in the same way when I was talking about earlier with Ken Wilber and this whole idea of development, when we're stuck in loops, we need another place to be in order to see through what's going on. It's not as if we need another thought. We need another reference point other than thought in order to be able to get a handle on the thoughts. So why do we meditate? Why? Why do we come to a place we've never been before with some people we have never met before in a situation that's unfamiliar and unknown? Why? It's a good question. And I don't want to answer your question, but I will answer my question. When I look at the world and the way things change, and the uncertainty of everything, including life itself. What I want to do is what is meaningful and valuable, what's important, both for myself, for the people that I care about, 
and for the world. And what I know from my own experience is that no matter how bright my ideas can be, they don't have a lasting impact unless my heart and body and mind transform alongside them. No matter what I know intellectually, it absolutely pales in comparison to being able to let attention rest in what is beyond the known. And it takes time and training to be able to work with the things that arise and help establish some level of balance with them so that we can work with what's going on. We can bring energy into our bodies. We can find ways of working with our fear. We can find ways of calming our anxiety and soothing ourselves, of taking care when we're not well, of bringing about enough comfort and enough safety so that we can relax. But if our whole life energy is focused around that, if all of our meditation is focused around balance, in finding balance, there is an inherent element of control because there still is a me that is doing it. And my capacity to do it is going to be a large measure of whether or not I feel well and happy and successful or not. And then what happens? There's times when it it doesn't work. When it's not in control and I can't make it in control. And if I'm committed to a path of me doing it, then I end up feeling more frustrated and exasperated and less peaceful and more ungrounded and more anxious. Because it cannot be solved in that manner. And so what is needed is a radical shift. And that radical shift is to feel the arising anxiety and to feel the response to that anxiety and to begin to release the response to that anxiety and then to take it one step further and release the sense of me to whom this anxiety is happening. And then, we're in a different ballpark. When practice touches and penetrates that sense of me as a separate, independent lump that meets the world and has contact with the world, when we see that as a mechanism of perception that is just arising and seizing, as with everything else that arises and seizes, 
And in and of itself, it has no substance. It has no inherent reality. It doesn't exist as a reality by itself. It exists entirely dependent on conditions. And the mind opens into awareness itself. Then there are no problems. There is only awareness and the arising of of what arises in awareness. There is no permanent, lasting, independent subject to whom these things are happening. And there is no sense of separation with the world that one is immersed in. And in that, knowing that, knowing essence, there is peace. Nothing is a problem. It doesn't mean that we cease to be responsive or communicative or trying to take care. Not that. It means that we cease to suffer. It means that we cease to respond to what is arising with a reaction of not wanting it to be that way. Of wanting something else to be in its stead. And so when attention rests in awareness itself, when there's the ability to see through the sense of me as a permanent object, subject, for whom all of this stuff is happening to, that I need to fix or control or make different or not have it be here. And then there's the relaxing in awareness itself, resting back in awareness itself, One is touching essence. That is who we are. That does not exist in time and space. It permeates everything. It suffuses everything. It is not exclusive. It's not dividing. It was here before I was born. It will exist after my body dies. Touching awareness itself. Resting in awareness itself. Means that there's the ability to be in relationship with the world. And not bound by it. Confused by it tormented by it, deceived by it. Things arise. Sometimes they're lovely. Sometimes they're not lovely. Sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes they're agonizing. They arise in awareness. Awareness receives and knows 
what is arising. In awareness, there's the capacity to respond without adding extra layers on top of what is already happening, of wanting or not wanting or resisting or spinning or confusing. What is here? Without adding extra, we have just what is. When we have just what is, there's much greater capacity to respond. With kindness, with compassion, with wisdom, with clarity, with conviction, congruent with our values. And in a way that's in benefit for the many rather than the few. Every time we experience a thought, and for even an instant, just an instant, a microsecond, don't respond to it with a normal habitual response. We're widening awareness, the, the space in which we can rest in awareness. Every single time we do that, We are making it more possible to be free. As we are free from our habitual responses, from the kinds of confusions that normally arise and grab hold of us and hijack us, then we have more capacity to be present with others. The whole basis of the longing in some traditions to long for or aspire to become a Buddha is because nobody has more capacity to see things and help greater than a Buddha does. So if I have a longing to help and my capacity is a thimbleful, if I had the wisdom and the virtue and the power of seeing that a Buddha has, my capacity to help would be much greater. So the aspiration in that way is to be able to be of greatest possible benefit, the longing to be a Buddha, the aspiration to be a Buddha. 
Now what I see is that when awareness rests in awareness itself, there is no confusion. And there is no suffering. And that is independent of what is arising. So even if something that's arising is difficult, it's frightening, or it's anxiety-producing, or it's enormously grief-ridden, when there's awareness, it is big enough to embrace everything. Without it being a problem. It's like the Buddha saying, I know you. Only in this case, there isn't an I that is knowing you. There is knowing that is knowing. And so what gives us more traction to work with what is arising? What gives us more traction to find balance with what is arising? To not be so confused by things when they're uncomfortable, or it's not the way I want them to be, or it's a little bit irritating, or I feel bored or restless. These are normal things that we experience. What gives us the capacity to learn to touch into what is beyond our limited sense of who we are? To touch into the essence of what we are made out of. that's not determined by the thoughts that we have, or the family that we have, or the job that we have, or the weather that we have, or the country that we have, or the politics that we have. So I don't know how this lands for you, and whether there's a sense of the enormous potential of freedom that's possible in all of that. But for me, it is riveting. And gives me the courage and the conviction and the capacity to stay with things that have been very uncomfortable and confusing and inspiring doubt and not knowing the answer for long stretches of time. So what we are doing here is actually of enormous significance, even if it doesn't seem that way. Because we can't judge the contents 
They can't judge by the contents of our mind states, the power and the potential of what we're actually engaged in. It's like looking at a treasure trove and just by the dust that's on the outside. It doesn't give a measure of the value of what's inside. Well, that's the same. When we measure what we're doing by the content of our thoughts, and whether they're pleasant thoughts or unpleasant thoughts, it doesn't actually give a clear estimation of the worth of what we're engaged with, which is a process of understanding thought and transcending thought, of finding a reference point that's beyond thought. It takes enormous courage to stay with this through the various things that come up and watch them until they cease and let attention rest in what is there when they've ended. And so we're here together to support each other with with our own good intentions, with space, with nutritious food, with teachings, with structure, to give us some container and support to hold us, each of us, as each of us goes through the process of being with what's arising and allowing it to go through what it goes through until it releases on its own. And it's for each of us to see how that impacts your own internal experience of how you experience yourself and the world. Whether it in fact does bring about peace and happiness That's a journey of inquiry, of discovering. It's not for me to tell you, it's for you to believe. It's for you to check it out for yourself. So, when we look at desire, following desire, has that ever in a million, billion years ever brought about lasting happiness? Has it ever been the case when we have acted on anger that that has ever been the cause of lasting peace? Has it ever been the case when we have believed doubt and followed doubt and listened to doubt, that has been what has led us to confidence.
these things arise, we need to learn to work with them. This is an opportunity where we can do that together. So I leave these reflections with you to consider if they were useful, if they were not useful. If they were useful, let them percolate. If they were not useful, let them go. There's nothing in what I say I'm asking you to believe. I'm asking you to stay in relationship with your own deepest understanding of the truth and let that be the deciding factor as to whether what you hear is resonant or not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.